You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. So, you, you know, you have this book on markets and democracy and, 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 and whatnot. And when I would go in Eastern Central Europe in places like Bucharest and, or Belgrade, and, you know, you'd have young academic types that care about liberty, uh, maybe had read Rothbard, maybe they're still into that, but maybe they're just into like anarchism kind of things or whatever. And they would always talk to me about you, right? I, I, and I told you this, I've told you this, you just always deny it because uh, you think your book came out and no one read it or whatever. But the reality is it had a, it had a huge impact. It just didn't have the audience that we might've thought we might've had here, right? I mean, so, you know, and I think part of that is because maybe Austrian economics in America in the 2000s became uh, normal science within academia kind of uh, thing. Yeah. Whereas what your book is doing is challenging our understanding of welfare economics, our understanding of, of, of you know, all kinds of things. So it's not just welfare economics. It's also, um, you know, democratic theory. Uh, welfare state. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, all these kind of things that you're going after and you leave no prisoners. Right. So it's it's not for better like, or worse, Pete, for better or worse, for better or worse. Yeah. You know, and so as a result, it, it, you know, but for young people that were overseas in Prague, in in Belgrade, in Bucharest, I always ran into people in, in Germany, always ran into people that knew about Dave Pacheco and wanted to know how he was developing his theories and where you're going to go, because I think that they there was an effort to to be someone who thought or envisioned a world without a state and not necessarily have a, a non-aggression axiom. Right. Right. So the, the basic idea is that, that the standard libertarian way was to draw a red line in the sand and talk about the right and wrong of compulsion of the state. And you and I have a sense of that. There's no doubt that we do, but that's not what determines our examination. It's much more of, you know, what actually, how can you stretch the mechanisms of, uh, of, of right. individual cho choice and interaction to be able to have a sustainable system that's, that's not only generates plan coordination, but does it in a way that's just, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. Some, whatever we mean by that. And Kim, right. I think, found that. It's just, it's, it's interesting you know, anyway, that's just a statement more than a question, but I, I, I do want to ask you about the, I mean, you know, you also edited a volume about economists disagreeing, you know, and. Yeah, that, that one I put, that one, I, I taught a course at SUNY Oswego on, on alternative schools of economic thought. And it, it was for seniors. I taught it only once. And I was putting readings together and I thought, you know, there really isn't a book out there at, at the time that puts together some Austrian stuff, 
some post-Keynesian stuff, some contemporary Marxist stuff, feminist economics, that type of thing, which I explored all that in, in the course. And I thought, okay, I'll, uh, may, maybe, the, maybe the time's right for this. That book is still in print, Why Economists Disagree, and, and, yeah. I, and, and, and occasionally people buy it or, or use it. But I thought the time was, was right for, like, you know, pluralism. It was, you know, that pluralist thing was, was emerging. And, and you and I are, are agreed with, with much of the pluralist stuff. Yeah, let a thousand flowers bloom. But you can't necessarily, you know, you can't combine certain things out of all these disparate schools of thought and claim you're doing some kind of like largely coherent analysis. Right. It really does. It'd be nice if it worked that way, but it doesn't. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so I put that book together and, uh, and, and like I said, it's, it still sells and, and people still, I, I see it being uh, cited and, and referenced. And, and I think they react to this. So I, the way I view it is, is very Buchanan-esque in the, because, you know, I've spent a lot of time studying him and I've adopted a lot of his language and stuff over the years, but he had this metaphor of the windows. But Don had the metaphor, basically just the Gaudamerian, uh, you know, notion of charitable reading and fusion of horizons kind of thing, which yeah. meant that you had to give other people their due, listen to them and all that. And to me, pluralism is a byproduct of a healthy science, as opposed to a position that any one scientist holds in it, but that as teachers, our goal is no longer now as scientists, but instead as teachers to try to help students look through the different windows. And so I see in your book, the respect for the different windows that people look through, rather yeah. than the idea that there's only one window, yeah. you know, and you know, it's interesting for us because I think that if you, if you go back to the economic way of thinking book, we are in some sense asserting that there's one window, but yet we're, we're trying to make space following Hain, you know, at the very end of the book that that window doesn't exhaust humanity. Yeah. You know, it's, this is all a tricky thing. Um, like when I took that psychology course that I mentioned, you know, we, we studied Freud and we studied uh, behavioral psychology, behaviorism and, and that type of thing. Um, when I took a sociolo sociology 101, we see all these different perspectives in sociology. And I walked away from that, finding it interesting, if not fascinating, but walking away from sociology saying, there's, there's nothing coherent here. There, there's not a solid research program. There's these different perspectives and that's it. Now, the tricky thing is for us as, as teachers, and some schools do this and apparently they do it successfully. Do we want our first economics class, which will be the, probably the only economics class for 95% of the students, do we really want that to be a course of competing perspectives right. where students walk away and, and then finally do say, boy, economists disagree, <laughs> right? <laughs> do we want them to have that impression that they, they might, you know, might already be biased towards from their other professors and right. to walk away saying it's all up in the air, the economists really don't know what they're doing? 
or do we want? And, and whether you're in, in kind of a post-Keynesian department or kind of a property rights, Austrian type, whatever it might be, do we want to give them the full exposure in their very first and probably last class to all these competing perspectives? Or do we want to give them a first general exposure to the perspective that we generally find ourselves in, yeah. agree with, contribute to? Now, it would be nice if most programs have, and we don't at, at Northern, but it'd be nice if we had a couple different capstone courses. One, a capstone course in higher level theory and math for the kids who want to go to graduate school. That'd be a nice capstone. Right. And another nice one would be to have kind of a competing or, or alternative schools of thought course. After students have studied the theory and applications and all that, towards the end say, well, now understand that you're working within and have been exposed to a particular tradition. And to be a more well-rounded economist, you, you should understand and appreciate that there's other sub-traditions within the tradition of economics itself. Yeah, I think of I think uh, you know, the idea. I think how fortunate we were with Bolding because his great books class, right? Yeah. Was, you know, Smith, Malthus, Marx, I think Keynes. Ricardo. He did do Ricardo too, right? Yeah. yeah. And um, did he do Mill? Do you remember? Uh, I don't I, remember. I don't think he did Mill. I think he just went to Keynes after that. Yeah. But because uh, I remember him talking, he stuttered, as you know, and yeah. him talking about uh, the K factor, which was <laughs> Keynes, Kolesky, and K -K 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 Kenneth, right? Yes. And, and, and uh, but. When I was at NYU, I taught a course uh, which was supposedly these contending perspectives. And what I did was, I, this was an introduction to honor students of economics. And I taught, we used Smith's Wealth of Nations, Marshall's Principles, and Stiglitz's Economics textbook, which had just come out. And the question I asked the students as we read the different parts was, what was the continuity and discontinuities in the history? So what unites them? And then where their disjoints about. Yeah. And the ironic thing was I tried to make the argument that what united them was a concern with the least advantage in society mm -hmm. rather yeah. than the idea of efficiency or something like right. that. But what discontinuities came is the over the means by which you satisfy uh, those ideas. But I think you make a really good point. But you're, again, your book is a, a, an excellent window into that pluralism discussion. You were a professor, uh, honorary professor at Texas, uh, um, Texas Christian, Christian which is devoted to that. By, by the way, John Harvey down there, he does have one of these capstone or, or contending perspectives courses. And uh, they explore uh, quite a bit of Austrian economics in there among, among these other schools. Yeah. And it seems to be going very well for him. Texas Christian University has, I think, a great department. Yeah. Um, you had you know, where it's, Barnett. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. And they, uh, they, they don't only nod to other approaches or theoretical perspectives or even policy perspectives, but they actually engage them. I'm sure you remember this. Because again, the, the, when we were coming out of graduate school, communism was collapsing in Eastern Europe, or, or at least fracturing 
soon as we got out, it, it, it they had the revolutions and everything. But, um, but that wasn't, it wasn't like that surprised everyone. That was all happening from basically 86 onwards. It was starting to fray. Remember, Don was even involved in uh, materials that went to solidarity, you know, movement and stuff like that. So <laughs> I, I don't know if you remember this, but both of us, you know, we, we mentioned before about the assistant professors. They didn't know what the hell they were doing. So both of us finally figure out that we need to get a job with this PhD. And we go and ask Don in our separate ways, Don, you know, uh, how the hell do we get a job? And he's like, I don't know, Richie got my job or whatever. And so I don't, I mean, there's absurdities about this that like, for example, when I was on the job market, I was applying to you know, chaired professorships at Harvard. And I was like, what's this? Just the, you know, it's a stamp, you know, like that. Um, and, uh, but it was also the case that you and I interviewed in the spring before our last year in graduate school uh, for a job at Hobart and William Smith Colleges, which wanted to do this, this diversity thing. Yeah. I don't know if you remember this, I'm sure you do because it's so bizarre, but I think I can't remember which one of us went first or the other one, but we met up afterwards and he said like, for the interview, for the, yes, interview. For the interview. And then we met up afterwards. And I was like, well, what did they ask you? What did you tell them? And both of us were like, well, there used to be this Bambabra Kilfredick debate and now we're going to have the Habermas. You know, <laughs> and I, I always in retrospect think like, what did those professors in that hotel room think? about these two people from GMU, yeah. both of whom are gonna you know, bring back these big debates, which they might not even know about because right. it's not you know, Keynes versus Hayek versus Friedman kind of thing. So. What, what's interesting about that, and I remember, remember that well, um, it, at one level, I think maybe they just wanted to check out what all this George Mason stuff is, yeah. right? And they'll interview a grad student. But they interviewed both of us. Yeah. If they only wanted to do some surveillance on George Mason. It would have only been one of us. Yeah. But they interviewed both. And yes, the crazy thing was we both talked about the same <laughs> from Bombavirk to Habermas. Yeah. Which sounds crazy to Austrians themselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, and here, and of course, we were never invited to. I mean, that, that was an interview at... at at a, a conference, at, at some meetings. Eastern, course, Easterns, they're always in the spring. Yeah, yeah. So, so we were never invited on campus. One other thing I remember, I don't know if you'll remember this, but um, Middlebury was was hiring someone in comparative economic systems, and Colander was in town. We were cocky kids, right? Yeah. No doubt. Our professor yeah. won the Nobel Prize. Our other professor just is, is starting a revolution. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, McCloskey is telling us the revolution is right. So yeah. we were very cocky. And here comes in Colander. And he's talking to us, and he's very surprised. I don't remember the context, but he's very surprised about how enthusiastic we all are about economics. And then all of a sudden, you know, and he's praising us for how enthusiastic we are. Yes. And then, you know, there's a job, and I'll never forget this, which is that the, he says, um, he says to you, um, uh, you know, you say to him, hey, there's a job in comparative economic systems. I'm going to apply to Middlebury. And he goes, oh, well, you need to have, you know, the language. He goes, and you're like, but I studied the language. <laughs> and I, I think you backed him up into a corner where he yeah, had right, no idea right. where the hell his exit was going to be. Right. And, and I, I think that attitude that we had probably maybe was naive at some level, but on another level, it was very charming, I think. Well, we have to leave it to others to decide whether we were charming or not. 
I can say it was partly naive. Yeah. <laughs> but but we we're also excited as hell. Yeah. And 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 you and you have to appreciate that. And there's that Tullock, there's that Tullock quote when he I, Steve said it in in his podcast with yeah. you when we were all debating and and arguing and laughing in in the center office, and Tullock po poked his head in and said, "You know, you Austrians are nuts." But he, he as he turned and walked away. He said, but at least you're enthusiastic. Yeah, but and I think a great, a great line of that is actually two things. If you remember the excitement we all had when Mario and, and uh, Jerry's book came out. So yeah. we all had to go to DC because remember they were held up in customs because it yeah. was a Basil Blackwell book. So it hadn't been there. And then we had, we were waiting for them to come out and you and I were the first two people online, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and, and that's also true of Rothbard. Remember we went down to the Rothbard seminars. Yeah. I'll, I'll never forget Rothbard chose to spend the evening with us. Yes. And this is even, I think before Steve was in the picture, actually, maybe he was. But again, was, again, that was partly surveillance. <laughs> yes, yes. But remember he sat with us and then we're talking to him, asking all these questions and he goes, wow. He goes, he goes now, you know, I used to be, I never met him assessing and now I have to beat him off with a stick. Exactly. And we were laughing. Yeah. We were like, he's talking about us. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, but we got to, you know, Leonard, you know, Ralph, Re Ralph Rako, you know, all these yeah. people that we interact, we had great opportunities. Well, um, we had, I mean, and it was exciting. And, and I remember, and we go back to Kevin Greer here. Yeah. Kevin actually said that Lavoie was doing us a disservice because we were running around with Gadamer in our hands and Schutz and Record and all yeah. of that as grad students, where it was time to really you know, buckle down and, you know, develop a dissertation project, get through the program. We did well in our courses. Yeah. We passed our exams, our qualifying exams, the prelims and all of that. But Kevin's, one of Kevin's concerns was, where are you guys going to go with all of this? <laughs> right? <laughs> Larry, Larry White, Larry White, same thing. Yeah, same thing, Larry White. You know, what are you going to do with this? Uh, and 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 I completely understand. And these were sincere concerns of theirs. Yeah. But I think our attitude was, if we do good work, which we thought we were doing, if we do good work, we're going to find that we're going to land those jobs. Yeah. And the thing is, we did. Yeah. Right. We yeah. we didn't have to take like a two year postdoc somewhere, yeah. or whatever, which is which is a great uh, postdocs and all that are great experiences. But we were actually able to, like with SUNY Oswego, I had that job lined up before I went to Yugoslavia. Yeah. Yeah. I had that job lined up for the fall. I came back yeah. in July and the job started in August. Yeah. Very lucky. And, and I just took, treated this as matter of course, right? And they were, and they were a very research active faculty. Yeah. Right? They even had a math econ major. Yeah, we had there. a math econ major, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so, they, were, they were not a they were not a Deadwood department. They no, were very intellectually alive. It's the same thing with with at uh, at Oakland University. I showed up at Oakland University, and I had, you know, people there that were, you know, publishing papers all the time, and yeah, um, very active researchers. It's, it's so it was great, a great job, great first job, great environments to start off in. Yes. Yeah. Um, so we could go down. You you return back home to your uh, to your alma mater and become department chairman, and now you're department yeah. chair again. Again, uh, <laughs> and, worst uh, possible time. <laughs> yeah, uh, 
you're, you're going to handle the COVID reevaluation. Yeah, right, right. Um, but I, I don't want to go down the route, uh, though, though I should point out that one of your students is the youngest dean in the country and, you know, has been an amazing administrator. And I know for a fact that he also was a tutor of economics as an undergraduate. Uh, you know, Scott Bullier just yeah. did an amazing job. And I refer to Scott many times as my first five-star recruit you know, because I was in charge of now recruiting graduate students. And I can remember, you know, trying to wine and dine him to come to GMU and, yeah. and work with us. And I think the world of what he's done, and he has specialized in administration. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Steve was an associate dean. Yeah. Uh, Emily became a provost. Um, I'm the only one who escaped being a, a, like a, a university administrator. But um, you're, a, you're a center director, and, and that, that's administrative in its own way. Yeah, yeah, in its own way, but it's kind of a little bit more on, on my own terms as opposed to like the university things. But you've done a lot with that. You've been an educator, uh, you know, and, and, and work with students, develop programs to educate them. Uh, you've been a scholar of the first rate. You've done philosophy. You've done political theory. Uh, applied economics, um, economic education. Do you have, is there, is it, are all the projects at the time you're doing them very enjoyable or do you have a particular one that you, you really, really is the thing that like keeps you up at night and excited about doing stuff? Uh, when you said, first let me say that Scott Bollier is, is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, he was a fantastic student. He was so happy to, to go to George Mason. And then he finds his comparative advantage is in administration and program building. And he's done a fantastic, he's a, just a, a star. Yeah. yeah. Um, in terms of my projects, and you said at the time, and it's true, I'm thinking probably 90% of the things that I've written at the time are, are so enjoyable each single thing and 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 so so it, what i'm working on at the time is always what i think is the best thing that i that i've done you, you know how that is yeah um and my, my I, you know my little problem is i just become too focused on whatever the project is too i can't think about anything else until i'm done with it and and I'm very productive that way but th there's some trade-offs with that but but basically and anything that I've written, I've really enjoyed writing across these different fields or areas or whatever, yeah. whatever you want to call it. But, I, but I, look, looking back, I think, though, the most valuable thing is our textbook. Um, they kept it in print. They kept it in print. We kept it in print. No, but I wish they still kept it in print. Well, yeah, it's, well, it's you know, downloadable. But uh, I, I think that in terms of in terms of having a, a kind of impact on real people, not only academics, but real people. Look at, our, Pete, our, our book has been translated into Chinese, Japanese, Russian, Hungarian. Um, there's international editions. And I, I think ultimately what, what I've come to appreciate more and more over the decades is my role and capacity as, a, as an educator, as a teacher. 
And uh, I, I think I, I'm really proud that we were able to keep the Hain textbook going for, for this many years. And remember, we were, we hesitated when, when the editor approached us and, and, and I still don't know how my name ended up on the list. That was me. Okay. Well, Paul, Paul contacted me when he was diagnosed with inoperable liver cancer. I had just been with him the weekend before. Um, and he, you know, he was such a man of, of inner peace because of his religious faith and everything. Yeah. Because he was so grounded. And he told me that he had this inoperable cancer diagnosis, but he was going to finish out the semester teaching. And he said, he, he said, I'll never forget this. He said, uh, getting the news of your own mortality is a tremendous sharpener of your lecturing skills. Because uh, now yeah. you realize that this sure. is really the last time you're going to yeah. say that. And he said he emphasized, he gave a lecture on Hayek. And basically, it's probably the use of knowledge and society kind of stuff from the book. And then he asked me if after, you know, the dust settled, whether or not we would keep the book alive, or if I would keep the book alive. Yeah. And I think I've told you this before. I, I was so excited about that request from him and, of course, said yes right away. But the issue was is that then I felt like I was all I could do is paint a mustache on the Mona Lisa, right? Yeah. And... So then I required the aid of my super friend, who is the one who taught me more from peer-to-peer -peer learning more than anyone else. So, you know, I mean, I, I understand that your passion as an educator, when I think about the impact that you've had on my life as a thinker, it's, it's it, except to Don, it's second to, to none. It's amazing because um, Don taught me how to read but you taught me how to be self-critical. I don't always live up to your, your aspirations. Of, well, but so I, I view myself as, as your student as well, your passion. Um, the last time I remember stay, staying up all night long to read a book cover to cover is because of you. And, well, was, and it was, wasn't even a philosophy, it, it wasn't even an economics book, it was a philosophy book. Simone de Beauvais, The Ethics uh, of Ambiguity. Yeah, yeah. And we were debating things and stuff like that. When I think back to our time at Boston University together, and we were living in that little apartment yeah. at the end of Commonwealth, and you know we just wanted to like we we had no TV, right? yeah. you know, none of these things. Both of us had little kids at home, right? That in yeah. our lives, right. and we're up there in this in this this area, and I think about you know the conversations that we had that were connected, um, you know, well, and how much I learned from those about things even like you know, jazz music or, you know, social theory, not, uh, you know, effective nonviolence, uh, well, you know, the nature of anthropology, all of these things, you know, these were all things that I might not have ever gone down the path of had it not been interacting with you about those. Well, I, you well I, I really appreciate that, Pete, but we were both learning from each other. We were both learning together. And this even goes back, and it's not constrained to it, but going back to when you mentioned being in that little like broom closet type place in Fenwick Library and reading the Marx's, you know, 1844 manuscripts and all that. We were, we were both going through this together in a, in a fundamental and in really in a, in a profound way. Yeah. And uh, we were both learning from each other and, and we were both, each of us were exciting 
one another. And, and it, it's well, that, that I, it's, I, I've been facing after it my entire life. I mean, it's a, it's an amazing thing. Uh, I still have my copy of, of Alchin and Allen that you gave me. Oh yeah. University you, had a, you had an extra copy of, yeah. of university economics. Yeah. And, and so, and I can remember the amazing, I, I, I don't know if you remember, I tell the graduate students this, I say like, when we were preparing for studying exams, we kept on thinking, how would Alchin answer this question? Yes, that's right. And, and thinking through that is, a, is, is an amazing, um, an amazing thing. And, uh, and we've just well, had, well, a, you know, Pete, I, we've had, listen, we've had a long career collaboration and a great friendship. And, and it's, it's something that I appreciate tremendously to this. Well, day. you keep on talking about that. You're, you're going to, you're going to um, pull back in a, in a, in a, in less than a decade here. And, and I still have a back of my head. I want to go to, you know, the Northern Michigan or Jackson Hole, Wyoming and go fly fishing with you some yeah, yeah. time and not on the, we were in this place in Burke Lake Park and I was standing on this hill and you turned to me and you said, you know, there's like a snake hole. <laughs> back uh -huh. And I was like, all right, you know, maybe we should play golf rather right, than right, right. Sure. sure. Well, I haven't, you know, I haven't done fly fishing since my Virginia days. I've gone back to, to bait casting. But, you know, that, that remember, though, also at Burke Lake, you, me and Steve. Yeah. And that's where just, just for, for, you know, getting it on, on the record that we decided to, we're working on that Beyond Equilibrium Economics paper, trying yeah. to formulate ideas, and we rented a rowboat, we had, had a fishing pole, Steve had a tape recorder, and we just ran it, and, and we were saying this and that, and, and Steve says he still has those cassette tapes somewhere. Well, Steve always, he was a surveillance expert, so he always <laughs> collected stuff. He was a little sneaky that way. But, um, but look, at what, what a delightful time that was. But it's not only a matter of reminiscing. I mean, we, we've had, you, Steve, I, Emily, we've had delightful careers. Yeah. You know, we, we've been, I use this word lucky, but it, it's come at, at hard work and all of that, some luck. But, but we've had careers and it goes back to, to truly goes back to, to George Mason, where we really become formed in, in a yeah. way, not only, but formed as professors and onlookers and analyzers and all of that. And, and I, we, we developed think, a work ethic, a professional ethic early yeah. on. I think Don had a unique, um, you know, a, a unique impact on understanding how to pursue the life of the mind yeah and whatever that means i mean both you and i you know we're, we're you know socioeconomically not of that class so there was always this like weirdness of fitting in and not fitting in at the same time yeah. um and 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 so that's kind of a whole other interesting thing i mean steve's the son of a professor Right. So it's a different world, you know, yeah. uh, of thinking about that. But Don taught us or gave us tools. So, you know, about four years after graduate school, I had I was a finalist for a position as a junior fellow at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. And I went down there to the seminar and it was Albert Hirschman, 
and Albert Hirschman was giving a seminar on his paper on industrialization and its discontents. So East, West, North, and South. It's a very McCloskey-type project because mm -hmm. he uses memoirs and novels and stuff to explore yeah. what people's attitudes towards the Industrial Revolution that they're experiencing right. at the time. <clears throat> I was one of the, I mean, this is in retrospect, and I'm probably being too self-aggrandizing, but in my memory, I'm the only one in the seminar room that was like, you know, all over it. I was like totally jazzed by it. And I went out of the seminar room and I come up to the reception area. And at the reception area, they have Sherry and like Brie and people uh -huh. are talking. I mean, it's at the Institute for Advanced Study. These people are like richer than I've ever seen anyone before. They're, they're third generation academic families right. you know, all these things like that. They know how to speak 20 languages, yeah. you know, and everything like that. And I'm like, is there a beer here? And what do you think about the Yankees? You know, like what's going on? Right. And I never felt a bigger disjoint between being totally capable and totally out of sorts within such a short period of time in my life. And I'm not sure I still couldn't, you know, feel that way about the whole thing. But I think Don gave us these tools that allowed us to walk in this world with these people, even though we weren't from their world. Yeah, and that's what I think allowed us to be able to be very, very good teachers at universities that are for people like us. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And, and, you know, you and I always felt that we had something to prove. Yeah. I think given, given our backgrounds, we had something to prove. But hopefully we didn't do it with like a chip on our shoulder or, or some type of, you know, attitude that, that can be taken negatively. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I've felt the discomfort being among academics, you know, with, you know, after, after the seminar presentation, wine and cheese gathering, the same thing. I have some discomfort just being in front of people talking period, including my, in, in my classroom, but I get this kind of like, I don't know if it's a nervous energy or excitement or what, and, mm -hmm. and I tend to, I tend to do well and I enjoy it. Uh, I find it a little tiring afterwards, a little exhausting, but I really enjoy it. But, but especially what you said, um, I, I feel most comfortable teaching students who are, are in or from the same socioeconomic background as me. Uh, I was a first generation college student and a lot of the students here at my university are first generation students. And I can understand and, and appreciate that. And when we have some one-on-one -on -one discussions in my office or whatever, and I ask them about their background that, I could, I could make a connection with them in a way that I hope they can appreciate. Yeah. And, and find, you know, we're, we're, we're professors, we're this, that, we've been published, we have textbooks, whatever, our name's in print, but let them know that, you know, we're, we're real people and we've had similar challenges and, 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 and hurdles to pass through when we were undergraduates and all of that. And that, uh, you know, you could, if you're interested in a career in economics and academia, you could do it too. Now, yeah. still show them DeBrew's book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And say, you got to work hard at it. I worked hard at it. I know, I know a number of friends and colleagues who worked hard at it. But uh, like, like you always say, if you got the passion, and passion really matters. Don't go to grad school because the job market, you know, the regular job market is not all that great. You might as well stay in college 
and get a master's and a PhD, you got to have that burning passion to make it as, as, you know, meaningful for you, the whole experience meaningful and, and fulfilling. Well, Dave, you're a, uh, an inspiration and a great educator. And I really enjoy us sitting here and talking and going down. I, I've exhausted your, your time frame. I realize that. Uh, but I wish you and your family uh, fantastic holidays. And thank you for taking the time. Well, thank you. Thank you, Pete. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.